What an experience that would be. Leave this building. You, you can be God for a day. What, the, what would that world look like? Uh, it actually sounds very frightening to me as I look over. Don't take that personally. Come on. You can laugh a little bit at yourselves, maybe, hopefully. Hey, there, there's a phrase that I would wager that all of us have heard at some point in our lives, especially as children, and that is the phrase, because I said so. Has anybody heard that before? How many of you enjoyed hearing that phrase in your life? Anybody like like hearing that? It's the ultimate adult trump card. It's even more versatile than the ever popular go ask your mother. And I never liked hearing this as a kid. Uh, I, like most of us, considered myself to be a, a very well thought out, rational, logical type of kid. And so when I wanted to go spend a night at a friend's house, you know, we'd uh, we had thought it through and thought about how it could all work, and if I, maybe I wanted to watch extra TV, and, and so when I made that request of my parents, you know, I would give my reasons as to why this should happen and it should be okay, and sometimes they would reject that. And I, you know, I just couldn't handle that as a kid sometimes because I would have my explanations, and sometimes they would give me their reasons. They would explain why, you know, they weren't going to let me go to that friend's house or why they're not going to let me watch TV, but they hadn't necessarily thought through everything that I had. But I realized and discovered that uh, sometimes when I continued to push, they would ultimately simply use that trump card and say, because I said so. Um, I, I didn't, it, it didn't happen all the time, but I remember thinking, you know, how amazing it must be to be an adult and wield that kind of power, you know, that you, that you can just shut things down. Uh, but I didn't like it, and so one of the things that I'd kind of subconsciously committed to myself is that when I became an adult, especially if I were to ever have kids of my own, I would never use this phrase. <laughs> oh, to be so young <laughs> and, so, and so naive. Um, as, much, as much as I might try to explain to my kids why they can't do whatever they want, whenever they want, sometimes uh, they either have an inability to understand what, why my reasons are what they are, or sometimes they just don't care what I have to say or what my explanations are. And so every once in a while, I will break out the because I said so. And, and I get that sometimes we might use that phrase out of laziness. Like we just, we just don't want to deal with it, and we actually don't want to think it through or anything like that, so we might throw that out there. But for the most part, hopefully, we're actually using that because, you know, the child that we're saying that to just, just can't grasp how we're trying to love them and care for them in that moment. I mean, sometimes they just don't have the ability to understand or to process our reasons because they haven't lived long enough, they haven't had enough life experience. And so sometimes, because I said so, is the best answer that we can give them because they're never going to get it. They're never going to choose to buy the explanation that we're, we're giving them. There's another truth that because I said so represents as well, and this is maybe a little bit more subtle. It also represents the truth that the authority uh, behind using that phrase doesn't owe the other person any explanation at all, right? It, it doesn't matter whether or not my kids like my expectation. I'm their father, and I'm bigger than them. So they have to do what I tell them to do. 
No, but it's because I love, like, I want them to know and understand that they can trust me because I love them, that I'm trying to do my best by them, and, and that their expectation is to obey based on that. I want them to understand that, that that is the case, but it doesn't determine my response. If it did, I would be relinquishing my responsibility and my relationship as a father, as a parent to them in that appropriate relationship to be able to teach them and how they're supposed to act and how they're supposed to respond to my authority and care for them. And while, you know, you can not do it that way and just let your kids have the run of the household, you can give that parenting method a shot. It is never going to work out well. And so as we bring our series on the life of Job to a close, and as we look at God's final say on the topic of suffering and the story of suffering and trust, it's important, I think, I think it's essential to be reminded of our place and position when it comes to our relationship with God. To be reminded that God doesn't owe us any explanation for anything that happens in this life. Because he is God. That's a significant statement to make. That there's nothing that says that God is required to give us an answer to the questions that we want answers to. And this is one of the things that we see throughout the book of Job. Job desperately demands for God to show up and to answer and say, God, why, why am I suffering in such a way that I, I didn't do anything to deserve this? Why are these things happening in my life? You need to give me an answer uh, to this. But when God responds, it's not with an answer. It's with more questions, which is interesting. It's a very God-like thing to do. Even Jesus does this. If you spend any time in the New Testament reading how Jesus responds to questions that are asked of him, he typically responds with a question of his own, as if to say, you're, you're not even in the same ballpark of thinking about this the way that you should. You're not even asking the right questions for this, and God does this with Job. Now, keep in mind, Job is not being punished for sin Job never cursed God along the way in his desire for answers to what's going on in his life in the midst of his suffering. And the fact that he was suffering was not evidence that he was separated from God. So keep, keep those things in mind in the context of what's happened to Job in his life. And Job and his friends, they've asked their questions. They've had their debate on the character and nature of God. They've questioned, you know, uh, how God is wise. They've made statements about how his justice can be trusted in the midst of suffering. Uh, We talked about Job chapter 28, the poem of wisdom that exists in the middle of Job that reminds us that regardless of our efforts to figure things out for ourselves, wisdom only comes from one source, and that's God. Job's fourth friend, who's been silent the whole time, he speaks up and he reminds us that we're not in a position to demand answers from God. And it's after all of this that God finally responds to Job. And by the way, if, if you have not been reading Job along with us during the series, or if you haven't read it before, you've missed one of the best opening dialogue lines in the Bible. And so I'm going to read that for you right now. This is what God says first when he speaks up and responds to Job in Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 3. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, and he said, this is great, verses 2 and 3 are amazing. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. I'm not going to say because I said so anymore to my kids. I'm going to use this, I, I think. 
And, and, and God continues, he has two speeches that he gives to, to Job, and it becomes very quickly apparent over the last few chapters of Job that Job has demanded God to, uh, to show up and respond and contend with him, and, and it's very quickly apparent that Job has showed up to a battle of wits completely unarmed as God begins to present Job with a deluge of questions, beginning with creation. And so I'm just going to read part of this so you get the idea of what God is saying over the next two chapters in his first speech. Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 13. He says, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place, that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? It's right about here that I imagine Job begins to feel very overwhelmed. And not just overwhelmed, but also very small as well. Because as God asks each of these questions of Job, obviously the answer is no. I wasn't here for this. And Job begins to realize, not only was I not there to observe this, but I don't even have the capacity to understand this. What it takes, the mind that it takes to create and set these things, the universe, the stars, the heavens in motion. I've got nothing (laughs) <laughs> to say here. I've got no input to make. And I'm sure it's also the point where Job is thinking, this is not at all what I expected from God. This is not the response that I was looking for. This is not what I was hoping that he was going to say. It's not the interaction with God that Job had envisioned. And maybe, if we're honest, the one that we envisioned either. Because if we were to write the script, maybe God's interaction and how he showed up and what he said to Job would sound a little bit more like this. Hey, man, and, and just imagine God coming down and, and sitting with Job. They're grabbing a cup of coffee, and God just kind of leans in a little bit and says, Hey, I just want to let you know, man, I'm, I'm just sorry, you know, for all the things that have happened in your life up to this point. I just, I just want to apologize because, and you, know, you know how antagonistic Satan can be. You know, and so and we had that thing. And, and I, I just, I hate that, that you've experienced all this. And, and, you know, we really, we needed a solid entry in the Bible to talk about suffering and trust. And so you were there, and, and you've just been such a great sport about it. And, and I just appreciate that about you. And, and just so you know that there's no hard feelings, I'm, I'm going to give you all your stuff back. Is that cool? In fact, I'll double it. And, and so are, are we good, man? I mean... It sounds silly, but isn't that, isn't that kind of sometimes the interaction that we do want for God in those moments, with God in those moments? That, that we want God to come down and say, hey, sorry, like all this has happened, that you're going through this pain, the suffering, the sorrow, and that kind of thing, but uh, my bad, but let me make it up to you. And yet, like that's not what God does at all. In fact, that's even... F- that's so far away from what his response is that that it kind of makes us wonder, like, what what is God trying to communicate here? Well, here's the thing. When we feel like that, what we're saying 
is that God owes us an explanation for the pain that we've experienced. And he owes us that explanation so that we can judge whether or not his justice or wisdom makes sense and it was accurately meted out in those scenarios. In fact, what we're saying is, well, God, we're on equal footing with each other. You need, to you need to treat me as an equal, and you owe me an explanation for the things that have happened in this life. And so what God is doing with Job is he's reminding him of his position and place when it comes to their relationship. Because this kind of expectation from God that he's going to answer all of your questions and that, uh, you know, every, everything's going to turn out rosy and good in your life if you follow him and, and like, that's, that's how you know that you're in good with God. That, that kind of expectation is only going to lead to disappointment because we aren't equal with God. We, we can't be equal with him. Not only do we not deserve to be treated as such, we don't even have the capacity for understanding, for being able to process what we would need to process in order to have that kind of conversation with God. Put in a different way, a little bit more tongue-in-cheek, from J. Vernon McGee, he writes, this is God's universe, and God does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. I mean, as God describes over these two chapters in Job 38 and 39, as God describes the heavens and the earth and the oceans and its created beings, not only are we and Job overwhelmed and feel a little bit smaller than we did before, but it becomes very clear that to be able to understand the mind of God and all the things that happen and go with that when it comes to God and how he works in the world would require us to have what it takes to understand everything in the universe. For God to explain... Our lifespans aren't long enough for us to hear the explanation. Think about how much time has passed in history and the way things are intertwined, the lives of people and the events and circumstances that are intertwined throughout the course of history. We don't have time for God to explain to us. Our intellect doesn't have the capacity for the information that we would need in order for things to make sense. But what God does say is this, you might not have the capacity to understand your suffering in the context of the universe, but I do. God imagined, God created, God ordered, and God can be trusted with what we don't understand about his creation. And so after this, after God sets this context of who Job is and who God is, he asks for his response. The Lord said to Job in Job chapter 40, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Not only does Job recognize his inability to grasp the knowledge necessary to comprehend the reasons or the information behind the question why, he recognizes his unworthiness before God, his unworthiness to even speak, and that God's wisdom can't be called into question just because we don't understand something. God then begins his second speech. He has more to say. And then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, brace yourself like a man, you will question, I will question you, and you shall answer me. And he says, would you credit, discredit my justice? 
Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's, and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor, and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them in all the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. And so in your Bible, if you have that out this morning, take your pen and just write uh, right there uh, in the margin, boom goes the dynamite. Because <laughs> that's what happens here. I mean, this is kind of a mic drop moment for, for God, although he, he continues to, to talk. Um, but, you know, God says to Job, hey, man, you, you want to take a shot at this? Like, you, you, think, you think you could do better? And, and you want to you have a go? You, you know what? You do what you want to do. And let's see how well that works out. Like, you, you create everything and make everything according to what you think is fair and makes sense and all that kind of, those kinds of things. And, and some of us, if we're honest in our arrogance, we would say, you know, if God gave us an option, we'd say, yeah, I want to I take a crack at it. Let me see if things would make sense if I, if I did it. And, and yet, doesn't that expose us? Doesn't, doesn't that expose our, our, the height of our hypocrisy and lack of humility and understanding that even the things that we think we can control about our own lives, we're worried about a whole universe, right? Even the things that we can control about our own lives think we can, the things that we know that we want to do or the things that we ought to do, like we don't even do those things well or consistently or perfectly, for that matter. And yet, you want to dictate for the entire universe and for other people how things should be run and how God should do it? How grateful we must be that God is God and that we are not. Next to an omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent God, we stand impotent and in need not of our contrived, self-involved universes, but in need of the one who manages all of time and space. And despite our having messed it up, still invites us to not only exist in his presence, but to experience relationship with him through Jesus and the Holy Spirit and with others. To even be caretakers of what he's created. Like we talked about last week, so much of what God is communicating in Job right now is about reorienting our perspectives around who God is rather than who we want him to be or what we want out of him. And as God is finishing up this, this second speech, he, he moves on. He says, all right, Job, you think you want to take crack at, crack at it? Hey, take a look at these two creatures, this behemoth and this Leviathan. And I know some of you got a note in your, in your Bible that says maybe, you know, he's talking about a hippopotamus or a crocodile, or maybe he's, maybe he's talking about dinosaurs, or maybe he's pointing out, you know, uh, creatures of myth, you, you know, that they're these beasts of the earth and beasts of the sea that are simply untamable, untamable. They're uncontrollable. And what God is communicating to Job is like, hey, just like these beasts exist out there and cannot be controlled, God cannot be controlled and domesticated by humanity. That he doesn't exist and operate based on the whims of us and how we want things to be. And it makes me think of this description of God in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Anybody read that before? Chronicles of Narnia, maybe seen the movie, that kind of thing. For those of you that not, are not 
familiar with it, uh, there's this part where these children, the Pevensey children, uh, go into this magical land, a different dimension, and the Christ figure in that land is Aslan. And they find out from two talking beavers. It's a great story. If you've never read it, you need to go out and like, at least get the audiobook or something like that. Uh, it's fantastic. Uh, they tell them uh, that Aslan is a lion in this, in this universe, this dimension. And they're shocked. They're surprised. And their response is, oh, I thought he would have been a man because they're humans. He must be a human because they assumed that God, that Aslan, would be understandable and relatable to them in their context. And when they find out that he's a lion, one of the children asks, well, if he's a lion, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Didn't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good, and he's the king, I tell you. Not only... Can God be trusted with the information and solutions behind our unanswered questions? He has the power to control the ultimate outcome of our fate. He's not dictated to by our actions, which allows him to be good. It allows him to provide us with love, grace, and mercy when we should be met with discipline and distance. In fact, in the face of Maybe it's suffering, pain, sorrow, tragedy, or or just the normal course of life, our response, what we do with our faith is is that we don't manipulate God to do our will. This is how Philip Yancey describes it in Disappointment with, with God. He says, true faith does not so much attempt to manipulate God to do our will as it does to position us to do his will. And so much of that is predicated on understanding our position when it comes to God. And so Job's ultimate response is this, in Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Job responds, he replies to the Lord, and he says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job repents before God because while his, he didn't sin to earn what happened to him and he didn't curse God in the midst of his suffering, he still missed the mark by not humbling himself before the sovereign creator of the universe. And, and one of the things, especially if you've read through and you know what happens at the, at the end, and I already mentioned this a little bit earlier, if you know what happens at the end of the book of Job, Job doesn't wait to repent and respond to God once God restores all of his things and possessions and people back to him. Job, Job responds and repents in the midst of the dust and ashes of his life. Because that's where, that's where God shows up for us. God isn't distant from us in the midst of our suffering. He's not distant from us in the midst of our pain. That's, that's where he shows up. He doesn't want us to experience that. That's not how he designed this life to be. It's in the dust and the ashes where God will take us away and out of the unreasonable and out of the chaotic and out of the tragic and out of the unfair and fill his promise Paul mentions this in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. 
And for everyone whom Jesus has died, which is everyone, we've all been called to experience that grace and love and mercy, to be invited to love him in the midst of the dust and ashes. The, the reality of the world that we live in is this, is that the presence of sin produces suffering that requires a savior that God provides. God doesn't leave us there in the midst of our suffering. In a perfect world, there wouldn't be any. But that's precisely what God wants for us and what he's still willing to provide for us through Jesus. He's still pursuing that relationship with us even when we're broken from it, even when we break ourselves from it. And God does more than just say, because I said so, he provides us the solution that we need through Jesus. One of the, I, a couple weeks ago, I wrote down this phrase, and hopefully I wrote it down uh, correctly. Uh, someone in our small group, Tuesday night small group, her name's Lydia. Not, you might not know her, but she said this phrase that I thought, man, that just really encapsulates uh, one of the things that I want to say in the last message of the series. And she said, God is the father, the parent and guardian that we can trust. And I would add on to that, like, even in the midst of our pain and suffering, that, that's who he wants to be for us. Even when we don't understand what's going on and we want an explanation, but there's not the time or the capacity for us to understand, like he is the father, he's the guardian, the parent that we can trust. And so as the book concludes, we find Job praying that his mistaken friends might be spared. His fortunes are restored. They're even doubled. He has seven more sons and three more daughters. And all along the way, the claim has been, the ancient wisdom has been, is that if you just hang on long enough, if you're just righteous long enough, God will reward you and it'll all be fine in, in the end. But Job getting stuff at the end is not about a reward. The reward had already come. See, those things are not what made his life valuable. And those things are not what make us valuable to God. They were simply a gift to be enjoyed in his time on, on earth. See, what the real reward is, is that God has saved us for relationship with him. That, that is our reward, that God saves us and rewards us through relationship with him, and that even though we broke that relationship in the beginning, he still pursues that and still provides a way for us to be in relationship with him. See, even, even after all that Job had experienced, think about this, because like, okay, he, has seven son, he had seven sons and three daughters, they died. Well, now he had seven more sons and three more daughters, and yeah, that's cool, that's fine, like everything he got back. But, but think about the significance of the fact that after Job has experienced this, he still chooses to have more kids. He brings these kids into a world where it's possible that they could experience a similar level of pain and suffering and sorrow that Job had to go through. Why in the world would he do that? It's because relationship with God is worth it. Because of how he treats us. Because of the grace and mercy that he extends to us. Because his wisdom and justice leads us to the gospel. There's this really interesting tidbit of, about Job's daughters uh, that's mentioned in verse 15 of, of chapter 42. And, and Job ha has named them very spe specifically, and, and I think that's representative of uh, some of the things that he was communicated to in the last few chapters uh, from God. But the thing that I want to key in on is at the end of verse 15, uh, it says that, uh, the writer says that Job 
gave an inheritance to his daughters along with his brothers. And it's kind of a really interesting, like maybe it seems kind of innocuous, but that's not necessarily a, a normative thing in that day and age. Like not everybody got an equal inheritance. And, you know, the firstborn son got everything and uh, daughters were, uh, you know, kind of uh, married, married off. And, and so then they would be a part of that family, all that kind of stuff. But, but here's, here's the thing, here's the cool thing that I think connects us with Jesus uh, with the end of the story and, and, and these things that, that, that happen. Is that when God sends Jesus and what Jesus does for us uh, through his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross is that he enables us to be adopted as sons, as children of God. And as part of that, all of us are invited into an equal inheritance like regardless of whether or not we're in the midst of the dust and the ashes, regardless of whether or not we're going through suffering or not, you know, maybe things are great in your life and they're perfect and maybe you don't even see the need for God to offer any kind of explanation. You're just kind of like, cool, you know, everything's great uh, for, for me that God offers no matter what, where you've been in your life, what you've experienced, what you're going to experience in the future, he offers relationship with all of us equally. And, and that's the thing that helps us move through our suffering. That's the thing that allows us to be able to trust God in the face of our inability uh, to understand. And so if you're a Christian, I, I want you to hold on to that truth. That, that's the thing that you need to remi be reminded of in the midst of you're not knowing why things are happening the way they're happening. And if you're not a Christian yet, and we serve a God who's worthy of our trust who has earned our honor and glory and praise, not because of our ability to understand how he's earned it, but because he sent Jesus for us so that we can be redeemed back to him. And so if that's, if that's not a, a faith decision, a step that you've taken yet, but you know that you need to, let, let's start that conversation now or directly after the service, or maybe it's an, an email later in the week as you think and process uh, about that. But um, as we, uh, as we close this series, uh, let, me, let me pray for us. God, we still have questions. I still have questions. Still things that we desperately want the answers to. God, give us the, the insight that we need to see how the answers to the questions are not nearly as important as the ability to be in relationship with the one who does have all the answers. That, that we get to experience life in the trust that we can have for the one who guides our path, whose, whose plan for our life is not obscured by what we say or do, because Jesus has come for all of us. God, give us the courage and the strength that we need in the midst of whatever life throws at us, uh, to trust in you. To allow our faith to position us in a place that we can be a part of your will for our lives, for the lives of the people who are around us. God, help us to, to share uh, this trust in you with, with people around us who are in pain, who are suffering, who so desperately need a relationship with you to move through it. God, we thank you for Jesus, and it's his name we pray. Amen.